Chapter 9 of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On the evening of the day following, that upon which we had consigned the remains of Lieutenant Kidder and his party to their humble resting place, the command reached Fort Wallace on the Smoky Hill route. From the occupants of the fort we learned much that was interesting regarding events which had transpired during our isolation from all points of communication. The Indians had attacked the fort twice within the past few days, in both of which engagements men were killed on each side. The fighting on our side was principally under the command of Colonel Barnett's, whose forces were composed of detachments of the 7th Cavalry. The fighting occurred on the level plain near the fort, where, owing to the favorable character of the ground, the Indian had ample opportunity to display their powers both as warriors and horsemen. One incident of the fight was related, which is correctness is being vouched for is worthy of being here repeated. Both parties were mounted, and the fighting consisted principally of charges and countercharges, the combatants of both sides becoming at times mingled with each other. During one of these attacks, a bugler boy belonging to the cavalry was shot from his horse. Before any of his comrades could reach him, a powerfully built warrior, superbly mounted on a war pony, was seen to dash at full speed toward the spot where the dying bugler lay. Scarcely checking the speed of his pony, who seemed to divine his rider's wishes, the warrior grasped the pony's mane with one hand, and stooping low as he neared the bugler, seized the latter with the other hand and lifted him from the earth, placing him across his pony in front of him. Still maintaining the full speed of his pony, he was seen to retain the body of the bugler but a moment, then cast it to the earth. The Indians being routed soon after and driven from the field, our troops, many of whom had witnessed the strange and daring action of the warrior, recovered possession of the dead, where the mystery became solved. The bugler had been scalped. Our arrival at Fort Wallace was most welcome, as well as opportune. The Indians had become so active and numerous that all travel over the Smoky Hill route had ceased. Stages had been taken off the route, and many of the stage stations had been abandoned by the employees, the latter fearing a repeat of the lookout station massacre. No dispatches or mail had been received at the fort for a considerable period, so that the occupants might well have been considered as undergoing a state of siege. Adding to this embarrassment, which were partly unavoidable, an additional and, under the circumstances, a more frightful danger, stared the troops in the face. We were over two hundred miles from the terminus of the railroad over which our supplies were drawn, and a still greater distance from the main depots and supplies. It was found that the reserve of the stores at the post was well-nigh exhausted, and the commanding officer reported that he knew of no fresh supplies being on the way, it is difficult to account for such a condition of affairs. Someone must surely have been the fault, but it is not important here to determine who or where the parties were. The officer commanding the troops in my absence reported officially to headquarters that the bulk of the provisions issued to his men, 
consisted of rotten bacon and hard bread that was no better. Cholera made its appearance among the men, and deaths occurred daily. The same officer, in officially commenting upon the character of the provisions issued to his troops, added, The low state of vitality in the men resulting from the long confinement of this scanty and unwholesome food will, I think, account for the great mortality among the cholera cases. And I believe that unless we can obtain a more abundant and better supply of rations than we have had, it will be impossible to check this fearful epidemic. I decided to select upward of a hundred of the best-mounted men in my command, and with this force open a way through Fort Harker, a distance of two hundred miles, where I expected to obtain abundant supplies, from which point the latter could be conducted, well protected against the Indians by my detachment back to Fort Wallace. Owing to the severe marching of the past few weeks, the horses of the command were generally in an unfit condition for further service without rest. So that after selecting upward of a hundred of the best and remaining might for the time be regarded as unserviceable, such they were in fact. There was no idea or probability that the portion of the command to remain in camp near Fort Wallace would be called upon to do anything but rest and recuperate for their late marches. It was certainly not expected that they would be molested or called out by the Indians, nor were they. Regarding the duties to be performed by the picked detachment as being by far the most important, I chose to accompany it. The immediate command of the detachment was given to Captain Hamilton, of whom mention had been previously made. He was assisted by two other officers. My intention was to push through from Fort Wallace to Fort Hayes, a distance of about 150 miles, as rapidly as was practicable. Then, being beyond the most dangerous portion of the route, to make the remainder of the march to Fort Harker with half a dozen troopers, while Captain Hamilton with his command should follow leisurely. Under this arrangement, I hoped to have a train loaded with supplies at Harker and in readiness to start for Fort Wallace by the time Captain Hamilton should arrive. Leaving Fort Wallace about sunset on the evening of the 15th of July, we began our ride eastward, following the line of the overland stage route. At that date, the Kansas Pacific Railway was only completed as far westward as Fort Harker. Between Forts Wallace and Harker, we expected to find the stations of the Overland Stage Company at intervals of from 10 to 15 miles. In time of peace, these stations are generally occupied by a half a dozen employees of the route, embracing the stablemen and relays of drivers. They were well supplied with firearms and ammunition and every facility for defending themselves against the Indians. The stables were also the quarters for the men. They were usually built of stone, and no one would naturally think that against Indians no better defense work would be required. Yet such was not the case. The hay and the other combustible materials usually contained in them enabled the savages, by shooting prepared arrows, to easily set them on fire, and thus drive the occupants out to the open plain, where their fate would soon be settled. To guard against such an emergency, 
Each station was ordinarily provided with what on the plains is termed a dugout. The name implies the character and description of the work. The dugout was commonly located but a few yards from one of the corners of the stable and was prepared by excavating the earth so as to form an opening not unlike a cellar, which was usually about four feet in depth and sufficiently roomy to accommodate at close quarters half a dozen persons. This opening was then covered with earth and loopholed on all sides at a height of a few inches above the original level of the ground. The earth was thrown on the top until the dugout resembled an ordinary mound of earth, some four or five feet in height. To the outside observer, this means apparently were provided for egress or ingress, yet such was not the case. If the entrance had been made above ground, rendering it necessary for the defenders to pass from the stable unprotected to their citadel, the Indians would have posted themselves accordingly and picked them off one by one as they should emerge from the stable. To provide against this danger, an underground passage was constructed in each case, leading from the dugout to the interior of the stable. With these arrangements for the defense, a few determined men could withstand the attacks of an entire tribe of savages. The recent depredations of the Indians had so demoralized the men at the various stations that many of the latter were found deserted, their former occupants having joined their forces with those of other stations. The Indians generally burned the deserted stations. Marching by night was found to be attended with some disadvantages. The men located at the stations which were still occupied, having no notice of our coming, and having seen no human beings for several days except the war parties of the savages who had attacked them from time to time, were in a chronic state of alarm, and held themselves in readiness for defense at a moment's notice. The consequence was that as we pursued our way in the stillness of the night, and we were not familiar with the location of the various stations, we generally rode into close proximity before discovering them. The station men, however, were generally on alert, and as they did not wait to challenge us or be challenged, but it took it for granted that we were Indians. Our first greeting would be a bullet whistling over our heads, sometimes followed by a perfect volley from a dugout. In such a case, nothing was left for us to do but to withdraw the column to a place of security, and then for one of our numbers to creep up stealthily in the darkness to a point within hailing distance. Even this was an undertaking attended by no little danger, as by this time the little garrison of the dugout would be thoroughly awake, and every man at his post, his finger on the trigger of his trusty rifle, and straining both eye and ear to discover the approach of the hateful redskins, who alone were believed to be the cause of all this ill-timed disturbance of their slumbers. Huddled together, as they necessarily would be in the contracted limits of their subterranean citadel, and all sounds from without being deadened and rendered indistinct by the heavy roof of earth and the few apertures leading to the inside, it is not strange that under the circumstances it would be difficult for the occupants to distinguish between the voice of an Indian and that of a white man. Such was, in fact, the case, 
and no sooner would the officer sent forward for that purpose hail the little garrison and endeavor to explain who we were than guided by the first sound of his voice they would respond promptly with their rifles in some instances we were in this manner put to considerable delay and all this was at times most provoking it was not a little amusing to hear the description given by the party sent forward of how closely he hugged the ground when endeavoring to establish friendly relations with the stage people finally when successful and in conversation with the latter we inquired why they did not recognize us from the fact that we hailed them in unbroken english they replied that the indians resorted to so many tricks that they had determined not to be caught even by that one they were somewhat justified in this idea as we knew that among the indians who were with them on the warpath there was at least one full-blooded who had been educated within the limits of civilization graduated at a popular institution of learning and only exchanged his civilized mode of dress for the paint blanket and feathers of savage life after he had reached the years of manhood almost at every station we received intelligence of indians having been seen in the vicinity within a few days of our arrival we felt satisfied that they were watching our movements although we saw no fresh signs of indians until we arrived near downer's station here while stopping to rest our horses for a few minutes a small party of our men who had without authority halted some distance behind came dashing into our midst and reported that twenty-five or thirty indians had attacked them some five or six miles in the rear and had killed two of their number as there was a detachment of infantry guarding the station and time being important we pushed on toward our destination the two men reported killed were left to be buried by the troops on duty at the station frequent halts and brief rests were made along our line of march occasionally we would halt long enough to indulge in a few hours sleep about three in the morning on the morning of the eighteenth we reached fort hayes having marched about one hundred and fifty miles in fifty-five hours including all halts some may regard this as a rapid rate of marching in fact a few officers of the army who themselves have made many along marches principally in ambulances and railroad cars are of the same opinion it was far above the usual rate of a leisurely made march but during the same season and with a larger command i marched sixty miles in fifteen hours this was officially reported but occasioned no remark during the war and at the time of the enemy's cavalry under general j e b stuart made its famous raid around the army of the potomac in maryland a portion of our cavalry accompanied by horse artillery in attempting to overtake them marched over ninety miles in twenty-four hours a year subsequent to the events narrated in this chapter i marched a small detachment eighty miles in seventeen hours every horse accompanying the attachment completing the march in as a fresh condition apparently as when the march began leaving hamilton and his command to rest one day at hayes and then to follow on leisurely to fort harker i continued my ride to the latter post accompanied by colonels cook and custer and two troopers 
We reached Fort Harker at two o'clock that night, having made the ride in sixty miles without change of animals in less than twelve hours. As this was the first telegraph station, I immediately sent telegrams to headquarters and to Fort Sedgwick, announcing the fate of Kidder and his party. General A. J. Smith, who was in command of this military district, had his headquarters at Harker. I at once reported to him in person and acquainted him with every incident worthy of mention which had occurred in connection with my command since leaving him weeks before. Arrangements were made for the arrival of Hamilton's party and for a train containing supplies to be sent back under their escort. Having made my report to General Smith as my next superior officer, and there being no occasion for my presence until the train and escort should be in readiness to return, I applied for and received authority to visit Fort Riley, about ninety miles east of Harker by rail, where my family was then located. No movements against Indians of any marked importance occurred in General Hancock's department during the remainder of this year. Extensive preparations had been made to chastise the Indians both in this department and in that of General Augers on the north. But about that date at which this narrative has arrived, a determined struggle between the adherents of the Indian ring and those advocating stringent measures against the hostile tribes resulted in the temporary ascendancy of the former. Owing to this ascendancy, the military authorities were so hampered and restricted by instructions from Washington as to be practically powerless to inaugurate or execute any decisive measures against the Indians, their orders requiring them to simply act on the defensive. It may not be uninteresting to go back to the closing month of the preceding year. The great event in Indian affairs of that month and year was that Fort Phil Kearney massacre, which took place within a few miles of the fort bearing that name, and in which a detachment of troops, numbering in all ninety-four persons, were slain, and not one escaped or was spared to tell the tale. The alleged grievance of the Indians prompting them to this outbreak was the establishment by the government of a new road of travel to Montana, and the locating of military posts along this line. They claimed that the building and use of this road would drive all the game out of their best hunting grounds. When once war was determined upon by them, it was conducted with astonishing energy and marked success. Between the 26th of July and the 21st of December of the same year, the Indians opposing the establishment of this new road were known to have killed 91 enlisted men, 5 officers, and 58 citizens, besides wounding 20 more and capturing and driving off several hundred head of valuable stock. And during this period of less than six months, they appeared before Fort Phil Kearney in a hostile array of 51 separate occasions and attacked every train and individual attempting to pass over the Montana road. It has been stated officially that at the three posts established for the defense of the Montana road, there were the following reduced amounts of ammunition. Fort C.F. Smith, 10 rounds per man. Fort Phil Kearney, 45 rounds per man. At Fort Reno, 30 rounds per man. 
and that there were but twelve officers on duty at the three posts many of the enlisted men of which were raw recruits the force being small and the amount of labor necessary in building new posts being very great but little opportunity could be had for drill or target practice the consequence was the troops were totally lacking in the necessary preparations to make a successful fight as the massacre at fort phil kearney was one of the most complete as well as terrible butcheries connected with our entire indian history some of the details as subsequently made evident are here given on the sixth of december the wood train was attacked by indians about two miles from the fort Colonel Fetterman, with about fifty mounted men, was sent to rescue the train. He succeeded in this, but only after a severe fight with the Indians and after suffering a loss of one officer, Lieutenant Bigham, of the cavalry, and one sergeant who were decoyed from the main body into an ambuscade. This affair seemed to have given the Indians great encouragement and induced them to form their plans for the extensive massacre which was to follow. On the 21st, the wood train was again assailed, and as before, the party was sent out from the fort to its relief. The relieving party consisted of infantry and cavalry, principally the former, numbering in all 91 men with three officers, Captain Brown of the infantry, Lieutenant Grumond of the cavalry, and Colonel Fetterman of the infantry in command. Colonel Fetterman sailed forth promptly with his command to the rescue of the train, he moved out rapidly, keeping to the right of the wood road for the purpose, as is supposed, of getting in the rear of the attacking party. He had advanced across the Piney, and a few Indians appeared on his front and flanks and kept showing themselves just above rifle range until they finally disappeared beyond Lodge Trail Ridge. When Colonel Fetterman reached the Lodge Trail Ridge, the picket signaled the fort that the Indians had retreated and that the train had moved toward the timber. About noon, Colonel Fetterman's command, having thrown out skirmishes, disappeared over the crest of Lodge Trail Ridge, firing at once commenced, and was heard distinctly at the fort. From a few scattering shots, it increased in rapidity until it became a continuous and rapid fire of musketry. A medical officer was sent from the post to join the detachment, but was unable to do so, Indians being encountered on the way. After the firing had become quite heavy, showing that a severe engagement was taking place, Colonel Carrington, the commander of the post, sent an officer and about 75 men to reinforce Colonel Fetterman's party. These reinforcements moved rapidly toward the point from which the sound of the firing proceeded. The firing continued to be heard during their advance, diminishing in rapidity, and number of shots until they had reached a high summit overlooking the battlefield, when one or two shots closed all sound of conflict. From this summit, a full view could be obtained of the Pino Valley beyond, in which Fetterman's command was known to be, but not a single individual of this ill-fated band could be seen. Instead, however, the valley was seen to be overrun by Indians, estimated to number fully 3,000 warriors, Discovering the approach of the reinforcements, the Indians beckoned them to come on, but without awaiting their arrival commenced retreating. The troops then advanced to a point where the savages had been seen collecting in a circle, and there found the dead naked bodies of Colonel Fetterman, Captain Brown, 
and about sixty-five of their men. All of the bodies lay in a space not exceeding thirty-five feet in diameter. A few American horses lay dead nearby, all with their heads toward the fort. The spot was by the roadside and beyond the summit of a hill rising to the east of the Pino Creek. The road after ascending this hill followed the ridge for nearly three-quarters of a mile, and then descended abruptly into the Pino Valley. About midway between the point where these bodies lay and that where the road begins to descend was the dead body of Lieutenant Grummond, and at the point where the road leaves the ridge to descend to the Pino Valley were the dead bodies of three citizens and a few of the old, long-tried and experienced soldiers. Around this little group were found a great number of empty cartridge shells. More than fifty were found near the body of a citizen who had used a Henry rifle, all going to show how stubbornly these men had fought, and that they had fought with telling effect on their enemies was evidenced by the fact that within a few hundred yards in front of their position, ten Indian ponies lay dead, and near them were sixty-five pools of dark and clotted blood. Among the records of the Indian Department in Washington, there is on file a report of one of the peace commissioners sent to investigate the circumstances of this frightful slaughter. Among the conclusions given in this report, it is stated that the Indians were massed to resist Colonel Fetterman's advance along Penal Creek on both sides of the road, that Colonel Fetterman formed his advance lines on the summit of the hill overlooking the creek and valley, with a reserve near where the large number of dead bodies lay. That the Indians, in large force, attacked him vigorously in this position, and were successfully resisted for a half an hour or more, that the command then being short of ammunition, and seized with a panic at this event, and the great numerical superiority of the Indians, attempted to retreat toward the fort, that the mountaineers and old soldiers who had learned that a movement from Indians in an engagement was equivalent to death, remained in their first position and were killed there. That immediately upon the commencement of the retreat the Indians charged upon and surrounded the party, who could not now be formed by their officers, were immediately killed. Only six men of the whole command were killed by balls and Two of these, Colonel Fetterman and Captain Brown, no doubt inflicted this death upon themselves or each other by their own hands, for both were shot through the left temple, and powder was burnt into the skin and flesh upon the wound. These officers had asserted that they would never be taken alive by the Indians. The difficulty, as further explained by this commissioner, was that the officer commanding the Phil Kearney district was furnished no more troops for a state of war than had been provided for a state of profound peace. In regions where all was peace, as at Laramie in November, twelve companies were stationed, while in regions where all was war, as at Phil Kearney, there were only five companies allowed. The same criticism regarding the distribution of troops would be justified if applied to a much later date. The Indians invariably endeavored to conceal their exact losses, but they acknowledged afterwards to have suffered a loss of twelve killed on the field, sixty severely wounded, several of whom afterwards died, and many others permanently maimed. They also lost twelve horses killed outright, and fifty-six so badly wounded 
that they died within twenty-four hours. The intelligence of this massacre was received throughout the country with universal horror, and awakened a bitter feeling toward the savage perpetrators. The government was implored to inaugurate measures looking for their prompt punishment. This feeling seemed to be shared by all classes. The following dispatch sent by General Sherman to General Grant immediately upon receipt of the news of the massacre briefly but characteristically expresses the views of the Lieutenant General of the Army. St. Louis, December 28, 1866. General, just arrived in time to attend the funeral of my Adjutant General Sawyer. I have given general instructions to General Cook about the Sioux. I do not yet understand how the massacre of Colonel Fetterman's party could have been so complete. We must act with vindictive earnestness against the Sioux, even to their extermination, men, women, and children. Nothing less will reach the root of this cause. Signed, W.T. Sherman, Lieutenant General. The old trouble between the war and the interior departments as to which should retain control of the Indian question was renewed with increased vigor. The Army accused the Indian Department, and justly too, of furnishing the Indian arms and ammunition. Prominent exponents of either side of the question were now slow in taking upon their pens in advocacy of their respected views. In the succeeding chapter, testimony will be offered from those high in authority, now the highest, showing that among those who had given the subject the most thoughtful attention, the opinion was unanimous in favor of the abolition of the civil Indian agents and licensed traders, and of the transfer of the Indian Bureau from the Interior Department back to the War Department where it originally belonged. End of chapter 9